0: Tale of Two Cities, Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. Does the following lines of a famous novel ring a bell with you? Quote, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of cruelty, It was the season of light it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. And it was a season, or excuse me, it was the winter of despair. And that begins Charles Dickens' well-known novel, A Tale of Two Cities, that was published in 1859. By the way, he also wrote a Christmas carol, which you might even be familiar with more than A Tale of Two Cities. Now, both the title of Dickens' novel and his opening Words convey quite accurately the picture of what we're going to see this morning: two cities, one characterized by wisdom, belief, light and hope, the other by foolishness and cruelty, darkness and despair. And these cities represent every destiny, every destiny of every human being who has ever lived or is living now. In other words, there's only two places you can go. One of these two cities. Now remember last week, verse 1, it says the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Now we talked about people uh, trying to figure out where is Mount Zion geographically. Is it in Jerusalem? And I told you that that was the name of uh, the The hill that Jerusalem was built upon, a pre-Canaanite name for it. But I also told you that it had to do more with identity than actual location. So when you look at Mount Zion, it represents symbolically this city of God. It's looked at the the holy city, the heavenly city. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly city. Jerusalem. So you have this one city, the Mount of uh, the Mount of Mount Zion, the, the Mount Zion City, or the Heavenly City, or you can just say Heaven. But this is symbolic. What I'm talking about. Now look at verse eight in our text. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Babylon also has a symbolic meaning. There is a tower, perhaps you heard of the Tower of Babel, that was built in the location where Babylon stood. Now the tower of Babel was not so much an attempt to reach up to God as it was an attempt to exalt man and make him equal with God. So Genesis chapter 11 verse 4. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So Babylon represents a worldly system where the focus is on man, a man-centered religion. So, I know it doesn't say this explicitly in the text, but you have the city of Mount Zion and the city of Babylon, and we'll come back to this question at the end. The question we must ask ourselves this morning, which one do you belong to? And we're going to walk through the text, and as we do, we will see characteristics of each city, how one becomes a citizen the lifestyle of the people who live in either city, and the final destination of the citizens of Mount Zion and the citizens of Babylon. So with that, let's dive into our text. Verse 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven or overhead, having an eternal gospel to preach. That is the Greek word for preaching, for proclaim. See, that word preach means to publicly Proclaim. Now, while there will come a day when no one else can respond to the gospel on the eternal day, the good news of salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, will be a perpetual reminder of the love of God for everyone who loves him in his heart. So we'll be constantly singing about the lamb who was slain as we just sung about a oh, holy he is how he was slain for our salvation. That's going to be like our theme song in heaven that we're constantly going to be lifting up, holy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. But here's this angel proclaiming the eternal gospel. Who's he proclaiming it to? We'll look back in the text. To those who live on earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. The universality of the availability of the gospel is stated here. People on earth, after everything that's happened up to this point in the book of Revelation, the people are still hearing the gospel. They're still given a chance. But you must understand this in light of verse 7. Look what he says in verse 7. And he said as he's preaching, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. The urgency of this final appeal is based upon the need for people to worship and glorify God and give him glory. And look at back in verse 7. It says, worship him who made the heaven and earth and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Now, that made me think about something. And you're wondering where I'm going to go now. I went way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. Do you remember what Genesis 1-1 says? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that verse only establishes the origins of everything. You are a created being. Can I just say that again? You are a created being. You're not some accident. You're not some product of cosmic goo somewhere. You were made and created by God. Don't ever forget that. I could go chase a rabbit, I'm going to stop right there. But it also establishes the ownership and the purposes of him who's creator. Now, if Genesis 1-1, let's start with the Bible. If you read Genesis 1-1 and you conclude it's unreliable, that it does not represent the truth about human beings, where we come from, where the universe, how it became in, into being, how this all happened, then all the moral and spiritual mandates we see from that verse on are rendered tentative at best, or little more than a personal or community ethic and spirituality. Think about it. If Genesis 1-1 doesn't mean what it says, then the rest of the Bible doesn't mean much of anything, does it? Because Genesis 1-1 sets that up, that he is the creator. He is the God. So since God is creator, sustainer, and owner of everything that exists, the only appropriate response of every human being is to worship God and fear Him and give Him glory. That's what we're created to do. Not just 20 minutes on Sunday morning. It happens every day of your life that you're praising God. Even at work you can praise God. Sometimes I need to praise God at work. Sometimes I need to pray to God at work. But that's what we're going to do. What do you think we're going to do in heaven? Do you think we're going to have padded pews to sit on? And the baptists will sit here and the messes will sit over here? No, it's going to be everybody from every tribe, nation, and tongue gathered around the throne of God and crying out to them, worthy, worthy are you, O Lord. You are holy, holy, holy. Do you remember back in the previous verses of Revelation, I mean previous chapters of Revelation, the elders falling down, throwing their crowns before God? Now, judgment is at hand. But even in judgment, God is merciful and loving. The angel is crossing the heavens, proclaiming the eternal gospel, telling people, worship him and fear him, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And that's something we have lost in our pulpits and our churches across this nation, the urgency of the gospel, because the judgment of God is is coming. So citizenship requirements of Mount Zion. Well, it's kind of obvious. You need to respond to the gospel. Confess your sins. Put your faith in Christ, Christ alone. Follow in obedience and baptism, which now leads to a result in lifestyle where you worship God and you fear him and you give him glory. That's a great mission statement for Christians. What do you Christians do? Well, we worship God, we fear God, we give Him glory. What else do you want? And speaking of judgment and worship, I reminded of Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. This is the words of Jesus: do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The highest temperature of flames here on earth cannot hit your soul. Can't touch it. But in everlasting torment, it will. Go to verse 8. Another angel, second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the Greek word translated there is pipto, means to Fall. Notice that fallen is twice. Now, that's not some scribal error that he was stuttering. No, it's underscoring and putting an exclamation point to this announcement. Pay attention. Babylon the Great has fallen. This is what they call a futuristic or proleptic erytis. Erytis tense form, Greek form, excuse me, erytis tense of a Greek verb. That means the action takes place in the future, but it's so certain it's going to happen that you can speak of it as has already happened. So when you talk about the coming of God, the judgment of God, yes, that is to come, but we should be so sure of it that we can talk to it in past tense because we know it's going to happen. We have no doubt it's going to happen. Now, some view the reference to Babylon as symbolic. The world systems, the world religion, man-centered religion, and rebellion to creator God. Some take it literal. The ancient capital on the banks of the Euphrates River. Today, that would be located in the modern country of Iraq. Now, if it was to become a world power, the city is not, not much there anymore. It would have to rise to power to its size and influence. Some believe it would be a reference to Rome. Now, we have evidence that first century Christians were referred to Rome as Babylon because Babylon and Rome both persecuted the people of God. Some believe it would be a world empire proximate to the old ancient Roman Empire. And that would fit with the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. But here's the point. Babylonian faith, that you're taking that as a symbol. what does it mean to be a, a citizen of Babylon it means you have a combination of different beliefs and inclusive of anything does this sound me? it's inclusive of anything than legitimate faith and allegiance to God does that sound anything familiar to us it's funny to me that you hear on the news that they want to be tolerant to everybody except for Christianity we'll take every other view there is other than the legitimate faith The only true faith out there, and that's faith in Christ. It's hostile to true faith. It weds church and state and will use the state to promote its agenda. To persecute those who are Christians and to persecute those who won't go along with their system. And to promote a man-centered religion. Look what Babylon the Great did. Look back in the verse. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. That immorality is a Greek word, pornia. It's where we get our English word pornography from. And that immorality covers a lot of ground, not just adultery. It covers a lot of the ground, but that's the word that's being used there. So the citizenship requirements of Babylon, reject the gospel, fear man, and give man the glory, or better yet, go along to get along. Just go with everything, who cares? It's good for you, it works for you, that's fine. Does that sound any what familiar to what you hear in our society today? Just do what you want. All roads lead to heaven. you will be all right. Then we see another angel. Verse 9. The third one. Follow them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now it appears at first that when these people get this mark after they worship the beast and his image, that they'll be okay. Because we're reading the text that people who refuse to get the mark were persecuted and killed. They couldn't do commerce. So at first it looks like they're okay, but the opposite is just the case. He goes on to verse 10. If you've done that, if you've worshipped the beast and his image and received the mark on his forehead or on on your forehead or on your hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, listen to this, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Let that sink in for a second. Now, wine was frequently diluted with water. Didn't have refrigeration back then. And if you didn't dilute it with water to some degree, you'd have a real heavy alcoholic beverage. Now, we don't even confess time, but if you were drinking a lot of proof alcohol, something really alcoholic, you'll start coughing and gagging because you just can't take it. That's the reason they have this thing called cocktails. They put sweet stuff in it to kind of reduce the effects of the alcohol, make you, you won't taste it. God's wrath in undiluted fashion in any way results in his fury being unleashed. So if you worship the beast and his image and you received his mark, it says right here in the text, you will drink the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. That's what the text says. But that's not it. Look further. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone, burning sulfur. By seasonal is the Greek word there that's translated tormented. It describes an agonizing upheaval and belongs in the same word group that is used to describe the rich man and his torment that he experienced in Hades after his physical death. I'm talking about the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember the parable, the rich man didn't do anything on earth. Lazarus was poor, had dog looking the sores. They both died. Lazarus went up to the Lord's bosom, and the rich man went down into Hades, and he was tormented. He was tormented so bad, he begged to go back and tell his brothers the truth. No, you can't do that. If they won't listen to the prophets. not going to listen to you. Then would you just dip Your finger in some water to cool my tongue. Now, some scholars will tell you that's not really a parable. Jesus is kind of pulling back the curtains of eternity. What's going to happen? And it happens, look back in verse 10, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. That's not intended to denote any fiendish delight on the part of the angels or the lamb. But it only establishes full justice of that which transpires. So the final destination of the citizen Babylon, God's wrath that results, listen to me, and everlasting torment. Now verse 11 talks about how their, their torment rises up like smoke. And it continues. And they have no relief day or night. It goes on forever. And ever. There's some teachings out there in some of our seminaries, not Southern Baptist seminaries that I'm aware of, that talk about total annihilation. Yeah, you'll be punished in hell, but then God will have mercy and just stomp you out complete existence. The Bible does not teach that. This is what's going to happen. This is why we share the gospel why people can't respond, why we do blasts, why we meet every Sunday, why we study the Bible, because this is serious business. This is destinations of people's souls. And the only reason I'm standing before you as your pastor is because somewhere down the road, someone told me, beginning with my mother and countless others through the years, some guys at work, who God sent in my way to bring me back to him. I inherited a free gift. I didn't do nothing for it. I just accepted it and asked the Lord into my life. This is going to happen to everybody who worships the beast or his image and receives his mark. Verse 12, here is the perseverance or the steadfastness of the saints or the holy ones. Who are they? It goes on, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. All these circumstances that happen require patience, endurance on part of the saints. It's apparent to me that during the tribulation period, people are going to come to Christ, but they're going to have some extenuating circumstances to deal with. People are going to die. People are going to get killed. It's gonna, I hope you realize the tribulation ain't going to be very much fun at all. It's, it's a really dark picture the Bible paints. Now, some people believe the church will be raptured before or during the middle or after. I hope we go before because I don't want to be around experiencing this, but that's open for discussion. But what should really bother us when we read this is the people that we know that do not have a relationship with Christ, that do not think of God other than the cuss word they say when they get mad. So, it's like John is telling the saints of the first century, be patient. Have patient endurance. Keep the commandments of God. Remain in your faith in Christ, even amid all the circumstances that occur around you. And if it's true for them in the tribulation time, it is definitely true for us. We haven't seen persecution yet, not like they have around the world. Oh, yeah, I'll get called a Bible thumper or Jesus freak or. Sometimes I'm excluded from things that really I don't need to be a part of, but I have yet to have one to hold a gun to my head telling me to deny my faith in Christ or to shoot my wife. That happens around this world as I speak. We haven't seen it here. We've been very blessed. Speaking of that, look at verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, yes, says the Spirit, so they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them." That word, translated labor, means uh, diligent or difficult work. Those who attempt to live for Christ, especially during the tribulation period, is going to be difficult. If they come to Christ during the tribulation period to live out their faith, it's going to be very difficult. Is it difficult living for Christ now in our time and age? Some degree, yes, it is. But those who die in the Lord are not in some pitiable state. but Rather, they're objects of a tremendous blessing. The rest in view here is not a picture of a siesta, but of Sabbath rest. God created the world in, what, six days. On the seventh day, he rested. God wasn't tuckered out. He didn't take a nap. But he rested in order to take up the next thing he was about to do, take up maintenance for everything that he created. God we call them laws of nature. We have all these wonderful names. But God is the one who designed every last bit of it. Think about that for a second. We have now got the, the knowledge. God allows us to get the knowledge. We can see stuff on a microscopic level. DNA. How, how things and cells in your body just know what to do. Look at the earth. How big the earth is. The circumference of the Earth and where the Earth is positioned in orbit to the Sun, so we don't burn up or freeze. The way we breathe out carbon dioxide and breathe in oxygen, and the trees breathe in carbon dioxide and take and give off oxygen. And I can go on and on and on. It's just science does not. It's not in contradiction to faith. Rather, science supports the faith or points back to faith. So this rest of heaven is not going to be a passive excuse the expression, a cloud potato experience of an active slumber, but rather the end of the difficulties associated with life here on earth and a new and exciting order with their contributions made to the kingdom of God on earth, falling in as reward. Look, it said their deeds follow them. <laughs> I didn't research this, but there was a song out, and I forget the gentleman's name, forgive me, who wrote the song, Thank You for Serving the Lord. And, and the song talks about... He dreamed he went to heaven with this person and people just started coming up and thanking him for serving the Lord because he, he led them to Christ. I mean, just a the fact there'll be no sin there. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around that one. I mean, what's that look like? No sin at all? No gossip? No insults? No, no, I mean, none of that's going to be gone. So what's the final destination, the citizens of Mount Zion? Being God's grace, you will be an everlasting rest and peace. The old, world, old earth will be gone. The new one will be here. We'll be with all the saints who have gone on before us, all our loved ones who are saints, and we'll spend forever learning about our Creator God, singing His praises in a place where there is no sin, there is no more goodbyes, there's no pain, there's no suffering. And the Bible says He will wipe every tear from our eyes. You know what I say? People say, "Well, there's going to be gold streets." Who cares about the gold streets? I want to see the Lord. <laughs> oh, what's gold streets in comparison to being in the presence of the Almighty God? And since I'm chasing that rabbit, <laughs> because of Christ and what He's done for you, and if you accepted Christ, His shed blood covers your sins, so you can stand before Him unblemished and blameless before Him because of the shed blood. I mean. What would it take for you to go into the White House to see the President? I don't, I don't care what you think about the President. I'm just talking about the office of the President. They ask you go in the Oval Office, sit down, and he'd give you 10 minutes, or possibly she one day, would give you 10 minutes to talk to him or her about anything you wanted. Nobody would, could be coming in, no news reporter. You would have their undivided attention. What would it take to get there? How about one of your congressmen? Or how about even the state rep or even the governor? But yet we have an open invitation 24-7, 365 days a year to go into the very one who allowed those people to have the office in the first place. So, are you a citizen of Mount Zion or Babylon? Have you responded to the gospel and became a citizen of Mount Zion? A city characterized by wisdom, belief, light, and hope? Are you still a citizen of Babylon? A city full of foolishness and cruelty, darkness and despair. And if you're still a citizen of Babylon, I invite you today to change your citizenship right here and right now. But if you are a citizen of Mount Zion, I want to point out several ways to which you can respond to God today. First, give thanks for your citizenship. Give thanks for your salvation. That guarantees you eternal rest in the presence of Jesus Christ. We should never get over that. Second, evaluate your life. Look for those areas where you may have given into temptation to go along, to get along. Honestly ask yourself if you're living a life that distinguishes you as a follower or a disciple of Christ. Confess and repent of your sin and take whatever steps are necessary that God reveals to you. And finally, make sure that your hope is not based on any person or anything, but rather is built upon your faith in Jesus and in looking forward to the eternal rest that he has promised you. And I warn you now, this just touches the surface about what lies ahead in the book of Revelation. You start talking about the bowls of wrath. But this is serious business. What you decide to do with this is going to affect your eternal destiny. The tale of two cities. Dickens uses that great contrast back and forth. Best of times, worst of times. You can see the contrast in the two cities, can't you? One being a place of rest and peace and hope and joy. Another place full of darkness, despair, and foolishness. We do serve a God that's passionate, that's forgiving, merciful, gracious. Patience, or as the King James puts it, long-suffering. But God is also a God of wrath, a God of justice. And what ties that together is his righteousness. Put it to you this way. If for some reason I went in Charlie and Paula's home and damaged it all up, stole things, knocked out walls, I'm caught. I'm arrested, hauled off to jail. In the next couple of days, I have my arraignment. That's where you enter your plea. Before I have a chance to enter my plea, the judge knows me from way back when, and I know him. You know, Tim's a good old boy, and I'm sure he didn't mean it, and he'll pay you some money for stuff and return it, and all charges are dropped. What would you think of that judge? Let's be honest, you you wouldn't like them very much, would you? Hey, wait a second. This guy broke into our house, stole this stuff, tore up our house, and now you're just letting them go scot-free? No punishment at all? If that judge, if he or she is worth her salt, she was bound by justice, the law, to administer justice, regardless how he or she may feel about me. God is bound by his very character to administer justice. Even though he's a God of love, he has to carry it out. Because sin has to be dealt with. In his grace and his mercy and love, he dealt with it with his son on a cross. One day, it's going to be dealt with people paying for their own sin and everlasting torment. Go back and read that text they are experience it day in and day out with no relief. If you're unsure, come. If you know somebody who needs salvation, come. If you're worried about our country and where we're headed and our leaders, then come. Spend time in prayer. Almost every revival or outpouring of God's Spirit throughout the course of history, has one, well, more than one combinator, one combinator is people getting serious about their prayer, crying out to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time that we could come together. And... Father, what a, what a warning you've given us. Yet, even in your judgment, you're merciful. Still crying out to the people on the earth to to respond to your gift. Father, it amazes us, the patience, the long suffering that you have. Father, this scares us to some degree and we think of those who we come across every day possibly family who do not have a relationship with you. So Father make it clear to each one of us what we need to do and give us the courage to follow through. We know your judgment is coming We don't know when, but we know it's coming. And Father, with that, we pray that you would give us a sense of urgency and boldness. And at the same time, Father, that you restore the joy of our salvation. Remind us on a daily basis of your great love for each and every one of us. Continue to move and continue to speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just stay with me, please.